We're going to be looking at uh, two passages from the uh, book of Luke. The first one is uh, right at the beginning where Luke, uh, I guess, uh, tells us why he's putting pen to paper. So Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. If you'd like to turn with me to uh, chapter 24 of Luke. I'm going to be reading verses 44 to 47. This is uh, Jesus talking to his uh, followers after his death and resurrection. Verse 44. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Uh, well, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Mark. Uh, if I haven't met you, let me welcome you to uh, Wollongong Baptist Church. Uh, we're so pleased to have you guys with us uh, as we think through this new sermon series, Conversations That Matter. Uh, today, we're thinking about the topic of why should I trust the Bible? I think it's a really important topic for us to consider. Uh, I hope that's partly why you've come tonight, because you want to know the answer uh, to this big question. Uh, it's a hard question, uh, and so I think I need help. So I'm going to pray, because I believe that God is a God who gives help. Uh, and so if you're a praying type, then uh, would you pray with me? Almighty God, you're a, a God who is truth, and you're a God who reveals truth to us. Lord, we want to be people who know true things and who believe true things, so we need your help tonight. Please would you help us to understand correctly what this book is that we have in our laps. Help us to see what we need to see in it and to do with it what we're supposed to do. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, last night, I was uh, laying out on the bed uh, before I went to sleep the, the clothes that I was going to wear because I have to come to church quite early in the morning. I picked my outfit the night before and my wife, Catherine, walked in and saw what I'd put on uh, the bed. And she lovingly, graciously, as she always does, asked, asked me, Mark, are you going to wear that yellow shirt with those red pants? To which I replied, no, I'm going to wear that yellow shirt with my new brown pants that I bought this week. And then I remembered something. I remembered that I'm colorblind. And I realized that what I thought were brown pants were actually red pants. And so I decided to alter my outfit because I trust my wife when it comes to things to do with color. I trust her a lot more than I trust my own judgment. And so you've got her to thank for the fact that I'm up here tonight not looking like Ronald McDonald. So thank you, Catherine. 
how do you decide, though, whether you're going to trust someone when they tell you something that you don't want to hear? something that contradicts your way of seeing things? How do you decide whether somebody is trustworthy when they're saying things like that to you? I reckon partly, maybe it's to do with how well you know the person, whether you, whether you think you, they're an honest, good person who wants the best for you. Maybe partly whether you choose to trust them is based on whether you think they're an expert, whether they're credible about the thing that they're talking about in your life. Maybe part of the reason, part of the way you decide to trust somebody is actually sort of depending on how much you trust yourself. Whether you think, no, actually, I I can see things perfectly clearly from my own vantage point, so I don't need to trust anyone. Might be a combination of all those kind of things, but I reckon that the same holds true when it comes to the Bible. When we ask this question of the Bible, it's those same questions that are going through, through our heads, isn't it? How do we decide whether this book is worth trusting? Is it a book that wants what's best for me? Is it a book that knows what it's talking about? Actually, how much do I trust myself when it comes to looking at this world and looking at life? Do I really know what's going on? How do you know whether you can trust the Bible? I want to suggest that choosing to trust the Bible, because it is a choice, that it's actually a, a big step for someone to take. Because there are lots of reasons why you might not trust the Bible. Now, if you're a Christian, you're somebody who has been reading the Bible for as long as you can remember, you may not be aware of this, but there's actually quite a lot of things in the Bible that make it problematic for people to trust it. Uh, For starters, let's let's just do a bit of a catalogue here of some of the things in the Bible that might put you off from putting your trust in it. How about, first of all, we have a think about all of those those really weird Old Testament laws. You know those kind of ones? Those laws in the Old Testament like you can't eat shellfish. Like, what's that about? All those laws about don't wear clothes that are made of mixed fabrics. I mean, really, that, that is some pretty weird stuff in the Bible. Are we expected to believe and obey all those kind of laws? Because that doesn't seem like a book that I want to trust. And what's the deal, while we're on the topic, with Christians who just selectively choose which of those laws that they're going to obey? You know, some Christians bang on about certain Old Testament laws and they just ignore others. What are they doing? Is it just like spiritual lucky dip when it comes to the Old Testament laws, picking and choosing which ones they're going to obey? There was a guy a couple of years ago named A.J. Jacobs, and he wrote this book called The Year of Living Biblically. And in this book, he decided to try for one year to obey every rule that there is in the Bible. Uh, Interesting exercise. Uh, This is what he said. He said, I tried not to covet, gossip or lie for a year. I'm a journalist in New York. That was not easy. I like his self-awareness. Ultimately, in this book, A.J. Jacobs came to the conclusion that those people who claim that they take the Bible literally, well, they're kind of full of it. They're just picking and choosing which commands that they like to obey and which ones they're going to choose to ignore. That doesn't make me really want to trust this book. Does it make you? But it's not just weird stuff that's in the Bible, like those Old Testament laws. There's a whole bunch of wacky stuff in the Bible as well. I mean, almost every page on the Bible, you are confronted with something that just seems unbelievable. You meet in the pages of scripture, you meet a talking donkey. I mean, come on. You meet a guy who lives inside of a a giant fish for three days and comes out okay. I mean, really? Page after page, you see miracle after miracle after miracle. And we all know that that stuff is just not to be believed, don't we? There's weird stuff in the Bible. There's wacky stuff in the Bible. And there's a whole heap of outdated stuff in the Bible, isn't there? Uh, We all know, us enlightened people who live in 2019, that the Bible is okay with a whole bunch of stuff that we know is not okay, right? Doesn't the Bible condone slavery? 
Doesn't the Bible turn a blind eye to genocide more than a few times? We, as enlightened people who live in 2019, we know that those things are wrong now. We've moved on morally from it. And so we actually probably all think we're better off for not having the Bible speaking into our lives. There's weird stuff in the Bible. There's wacky stuff in the Bible. There's morally outdated stuff in the Bible. But actually, when you even zoom out and just look at the Bible as a whole, there's even more problems with it there, right? I mean, every one of us could probably name several contradictions that are there in the Bible. The Bible says so much stuff. Well, it's not surprising, really, that you've got authors contradicting each other. For Christians who say that this book is absolutely and always true, how do they get around that? Contradictions. Uh, More than that, uh, how do we even know that this book right here is the book that existed thousands of years ago? I mean, come on, it must have been copied and changed and and morphed over the years, right? It was a game of Chinese whispers for thousands of years. We don't need to trust this book. And and more than that, we actually know how this book came together, right? It was an inside job. It was the guys who were in power who chose what books were going to be in the Bible, uh, and they just did it to suit their own kind of selfish means, I mean, do we really need to trust a book with that many problems? Do we need to trust a book like that when Christians don't even trust a book like that? Do you know there are plenty of people who call themselves Christians who have no interest in listening to the Bible? A couple of weeks ago, uh, there was an Anglican archbishop. uh, This is whilst the abortion bill was being debated in the New South Wales Parliament. And he wrote a letter into the Sydney Morning Herald and got published. And this is what he said. This is uh, Father Peter MacLeod. This was my second choice for the outfit I was going to wear tonight, but Catherine again, she said no. Uh, This is what Peter McLeod says about trying to actually take the Bible seriously. He says, The Christian tradition has consistently arrived at the wrong conclusion when it places the words of a pre-enlightenment document in the driving seat rather than the welfare of contemporary human beings. Just as the marriage equality debate yesterday, abortion today, and religious freedom tomorrow, an ethical navigation system that hasn't been updated for 2,000 years will have us arriving at a series of stinking wheelie bins instead of positive community destinations. Christians don't even take the Bible seriously. Are we really suggesting that we should take this, this book seriously? I think the conclusion that a lot of people have come to when it comes to the Bible is that it's fake news. You know this term, Donald Trump loves to throw it around, I think he coined the term a couple of years ago, saying that the media in America were, were you know, uh, controlling the narrative to suit their own means. You can't trust anything that the media says. The media, for their part, turned it around and said, no, it's the politicians who are controlling the narrative. The politicians are the ones with the fake news. Can you trust any of them? Can you trust the Bible? I mean, it just seems like fake news as well, doesn't it? And on top of that, consider the fact that we are now living in in an age, in a culture that is post-truth. You ever heard this word? It was added to the Oxford English Dictionary a couple of years ago. It was the word of the year in 2016. What it's referring to is the kind of mood in our culture where we have so moved beyond facts in determining public opinion. Facts don't seem to matter anymore. People have given up on truth. Say, well, there's no way for us to know. Nobody's really telling the truth, so we are a post-truth culture. If that's the world we're living in, how could we possibly trust the Bible? These are good questions, I think, Uh, questions that we have to grapple with quite seriously. They're questions perhaps some of you here tonight have had. Uh, My story, we've heard a bit of Tristan's story, Uh, my story is that 
I shared a lot of these questions, a lot of these objections to the Bible. I grew up in a household that was completely non-religious. I had sort of no uh, Christian upbringing whatsoever. I hadn't looked at a page of the Bible my whole life. And I, I didn't need to, though. I mean, I had a Bible at home, as most of us do, just sitting on a shelf collecting dust somewhere. But I already knew what was in the Bible. I knew it was a book of fairy tales. I knew it was a book that I didn't need to trust, I didn't need to believe, I didn't need to obey. So I didn't. Until, towards the end of high school, a friend of mine challenged me to actually think about the assumptions I had about the Bible, to think about it seriously, and to investigate some of my assumptions about the Bible. And so what I did, similar to Tristan, was that I went on a bit of a research journey for a couple of years, trying to find out as much information about the Bible as I could. And what I discovered at the end of those two years was that a lot of what I thought I knew about the Bible turned out to be fake news. The Bible itself was not so much of the fake news, but what I thought I knew about the Bible, that was the fake news. And so today... uh, Cards on the table, I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that the Bible is fake news, and I'm here tonight to try and convince you likewise. Uh, So what I want to try and do today is to suggest to you that perhaps it's possible. Would you be open to considering that there is a slim possibility that some of the assumptions that you've made about the Bible might be wrong, that you might be misinformed about some of it? What I want to try and do with kind of the next 20 minutes or so is to look at some of the most common objections that people have about the Bible and to see whether we actually are looking at those objections correctly or whether we've believed a few lies along the way. And so what I want to do is I want to look at uh, what I think are three of the most common uh, objections to the Bible. Firstly, the objection that there's just too many contradictions in the Bible and so we don't need to take any of it literally, any of it as truth. Uh, The the second objection, that it was lost in translation, Chinese whispers along the way. And the third objection, well, at the end of the day, the Bible is impossible to understand. It's all subjective, so don't worry about it anyway. I want to have a think about those objections with you, and I want to ask you to come along on this journey with me with an open mind, considering that perhaps, perhaps the Bible has something to say. Perhaps the Bible might just be trustworthy, and it might be worth considering this. So let's have a think, first of all, about this this first objection. Are there too many contradictions in the Bible? As I said before, a lot of us probably can think of places where the Bible seems to be saying one thing in one place and another thing in another place. What are we supposed to do with that? If you go on the internet and you you search for kind of a list of Bible contradictions, uh, you'll find over 400 Bible contradictions. And really, they start from page one of the Bible. You don't have to look far in the Bible to find a contradiction. Let me introduce you to, I think, the first contradiction in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, the very first book of the Bible, very first chapter. It's the story of the creation of the world. Uh, We get told in Genesis chapter 1, you know the story, God creates the world in six days. What what is he doing on day three? He's creating trees and plants. What is he doing on day six? He's creating humanity. Okay, what about Genesis chapter 2? It's a a similar story about the creation, except it tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that when God created Adam, there was no vegetation in the world. (laughs) Contradiction, right? Come on, Genesis, get get your act together. Which is it? Were there plants that came first or was it humanity that came first? It seems like the Bible just starts off on the wrong foot, doesn't it? And you can find contradictions like this all throughout the Bible. Literally hundreds of them. This is a a graphic which displays uh, where the contradictions in the Bible are. There are about 400 of these lines linking up one chapter of the Bible to another place where it seems as though uh, it's contradicting that first place. What do you do with contradictions in the Bible? 
Well, I think you need to look at them closely. Because when you start to look at these so-called contradictions, what you start to see, actually, is that they're not actually as big problems as they first appear. Usually, with the 400 or so contradictions that people trot out with the Bible, what it is is a case of the authors uh, reflecting on or telling the same story from a slightly different perspective in order to make a different point. And so that's what's happening in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This is not a contradiction. The author is deliberately putting things this way to try and teach two points. Genesis chapter 1, he's trying to show that humanity is sort of that, the pinnacle of God's creation. We created on the final day. You know, it's God's crowning achievement was to make us. That's what Genesis 1 is trying to show. And then Genesis chapter 2, well, it puts humanity a little bit earlier because it's trying to show that we've got a task. God has given us a task when he created us to rule this world. It's not so much of a contradiction, is it? It's making two different points for different purposes. And actually, most of the contradictions that you find on this list, they all just kind of fade away when you start to see what the purpose behind the author's uh, statements are. And in fact, when you read the Bible for yourself, if you read from left to right, chapter by chapter, you would not be surprised at the amount of contradictions that you find. What you'd be surprised about is the overall coherence of the Bible. That's what you'd notice. This is a similar graphic, uh, but instead of 400 contradictions being represented by 400 lines, what this shows us is all of the places that one part of the Bible is referenced by another part of the Bible, where one author picks up on something that another author said and sort of alludes to it and pulls it through and completes that train of thought. Do you know how many lines there are on this graphic? There are over 64,000 of them. The Bible's not messing around. The Bible, you can see from this graphic, is one unified story. And that's what you will notice if you read through the Bible from beginning to end, how much it synchronizes together, how much it is one big story from beginning to end. 66 different books, yes, but one overall story. That's what you'd notice. In fact, most of the, the kind of the variations that you would uh, experience as you read through the Bible, where you notice one author saying one thing and another saying another, is, is because of just the natural variation of different authors emphasizing different things. So for example, uh, a few months ago, uh, my wife was in a car accident, this was our car, got written off. Someone crashed into the back of her, pushed her into the car in front, all three cars got written off. So I had the joy and the pleasure of dealing with the insurance company for a few weeks, and dealing with the hire car company for a few weeks, and dealing with the other parties in the accident for a few weeks. And so time and time again, we were telling our version of events to the insurance companies and stuff. So were the other parties in the, in the accident. Let me ask you a question. If you were in the shoes of the insurance company, and all three parties in this accident gave you their take on events, and it was word for word identical, what would you conclude? A conspiracy. It's a con job, right? We, we've, we've schemed this thing up for the insurance money. But actually, if the three people in the accident all give you the same version of events with, with roughly the same core in the message, but a few differences of emphasis, a few details left out, what do you start to conclude then? You start to conclude that this actually happened that this is real history. This actually took place. There's something worth looking into here. Do you know, it's exactly the same with the Bible. That's why we have some of these differences. In fact, in that first passage that Eric read for us in Luke chapter 1, Luke basically explains this whole thing to us. Uh, this is Luke chapter 1, one of the Gospels with the biographies about Jesus. How does Luke start off his Gospel? Once upon a time in a land far, far away. No, he doesn't start that way, does he? 
What does he say? Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that are being fulfilled. What is Luke signaling with an introduction like this? He's saying that he is writing an eyewitness account. He's writing things that really happen, true history. And in fact, Luke knows that there are other people who have written similar accounts as well, right? And so now he said, oh, I think I should have a crack at that too because I saw a lot of this stuff happen. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I've heard the events. So let me tell you my version of events, Theophilus, because I want you to be convinced. I want you to have no doubt about whether this stuff actually happened. That's why Luke writes his, his, his biography. And so what we end up with in the Bible is a book like Luke telling us what happened in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we get to compare that with other stories of Jesus, other biographies. And what we see is a real person who really lived here on earth, who really said and did the things that the Bible says he, and that he did, who really died, who really rose again. You start to see real history coming out. So the conclusion, actually, the, the, the belief that there are contradictions in the Bible that make it impossible to trust, I want to suggest to you that that is more fake news than perhaps you've considered in the past. What about the, uh, the second objection then? The second objection that well, the Bible was just, you know, it was lost in transmission, passed on from one scribe to another years and years and years, one giant game of Chinese whispers, and now what we have is nothing like the original. You ever heard that kind of accusation before? Do you know, just incidentally, that the game Chinese Whispers, that it used to be called Tiny Whiskers, and then before that it was called Shiny Whistlers? Did you know that? No. Uh, what's my point? My point is, that's what people think has happened with the Bible, right? One person kind of passed on the details, someone got it wrong, passed on the details, they got some more details wrong, passed it on again, and now what have we got? I want to suggest to you that actually uh, there's no room in the Bible for thinking that kind of a way. What's the truth of the matter? I want to show you a graphic. Uh, there's a lot of detail here, so don't worry too much about it. Basically, what this, this graphic is showing you is the reliability of the document that we have on our laps there in the Bible. Uh, this is comparing the reliability of the New Testament to uh, lots of other ancient writers, ancient historians. So let me give you one example of how the New Testament stacks up against some other writers. So for example, uh, the ancient historian Tacitus, uh, any academic historian these days in a university uh, trusts Tacitus. Uh, his writings, we know that they're accurate, they're to be believed, no questions asked. However, with Tacitus, the earliest manuscripts we have of what he wrote come 750 years after when he first wrote it. We don't have anything between when he wrote it and 750 years. And then of those earliest manuscripts, we have 33 copies of them. That's all, 33 copies. But that's enough for historians to believe that Tacitus is reliable, okay? Now you compare that to the New Testament and what do you start to see? The New Testament, we have some of the manuscripts from as early as 40 to 70 years after they were first written. A tiny, tiny gap in time, relatively speaking. And we have, of those earliest manuscripts, over 5,700 copies. Then, when you factor in all of the ways that all of the languages, those original Greek manuscripts were translated into, you have a further 17,000 copies. I mean, there is no comparison here between the Bible and any other ancient document. 
it is incomparable. It blows Tacitus out of the water. And so what this, what this graphic is showing you, the sheer volume of manuscripts that we have from so early on after the events, it's telling you two things, really. It's telling you, first of all, that you can have confidence that this is describing real history, that these events really happened. You know, if it wasn't for the things that the Bible claimed and the implications of those things, every historian would believe the, uh, the events of the New Testament took place exactly as they were written. You can know that the events of the New Testament really happened. That's the first implication. The second implication from having this many manuscripts so early on is that we can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the version of the Bible we have today is exactly the same as the Bible 2,000 years ago. There's no room for that doubt anymore, that the Bible was lost in transmission. It just does not stack up with the evidence. And so if that's something that you've believed, that maybe the Bible has just changed over time... I want to suggest to you that perhaps you've bought some fake news. What about the third objection there that I mentioned? The objection that the Bible, really, at the end of the day, it's just impossible to understand, you know? We're living in a post-truth culture, and so your truth is as good as mine. It's all just subjective. You have your interpretation. I have my interpretation. How can we possibly say anybody's wrong? We shouldn't even try and, and say what the Bible actually says is true because it's a lost game anyway. What do you do when this objection creeps up in your mind? I want to suggest to you that this objection doesn't really hold much water. Uh, Mark Twain uh, said this. He said, Most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture which they cannot understand. But as for me, I've always noticed that the passages of Scripture which trouble me the most are the ones which I do understand. I think he's right. The Bible is actually pretty plain to read. Uh, the, the main things that the Bible teaches you are pretty obvious. The issue is the implications of those things. That's what we don't like. That's why we throw this accusation at the Bible, because of what it would mean if I admitted that that is true. Can I give you a couple of examples? When, when the Bible says, when God speaks in the Bible, and he says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Let me ask you, is that hard to understand? I don't think it is. The implications of that, they're hard. Because that means that I am no longer God of my life. I can worship no one else except the Lord of heaven and earth. But it seems pretty obvious as to what that actually means. When Jesus comes along and he says, love your neighbour as yourself, is that ambiguous? I don't think it is. I think it's pretty plain what Jesus meant. The implications of it... Whew, that's hard to swallow because that means that I have to reassess the way that I treat all other people. You see, the, the plain meaning of the Bible is pretty obvious. The implications are what we tend not to like. Even in a post-truth culture like the one we're living in, the voice of the Bible speaks pretty loudly. You don't need a PhD to understand it. You don't need to be an academic to read the Bible and make sense of it. Do you know Jesus himself, he said, "'Seek and you will find.'" Ask and you will receive. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Do you know, friends, if you have a soft heart and like relatively good comprehension skills, you'll be able to make sense of the Bible. The idea that it is impossible to understand, it just doesn't hold water. It is plain for all to see the main teachings of the Bible. So again, this idea that the Bible is impossible to understand, perhaps that's fake news. So three objections that we've had a bit of a think about tonight. 
three examples of what I think are fake news about the Bible. And I think you have to reckon with those things. You have to wrestle with them. Decide what you're going to do with evidence like that. My uh, experience was that over the course of that two years, as I uh, started to investigate the Bible and ask these sort of questions and seek out these sort of answers, just like Tristan, I found answers to my questions. I found good answers, answers that really satisfied me, that made me confident that I actually could trust this book, that this book was worthy of my attention. And so at about the age of 18, I started to read the Bible because I knew that this was a real book with real authority that I have to decide to do something with. So I read the Bible for myself. I want to suggest that might be something worthwhile for you to do as well. If for no other reason, actually let me put it in the words of Jordan Peterson. Do you know Jordan Peterson? He's a Canadian academic and a psychologist, been quite famous recently for being quite outspoken about a number of things. He himself is not a Christian. Uh, he, he sort of claims to, to not have a decision on this. But here's what he says about the Bible. He says, the Bible is, for better or worse, the foundational document of Western civilization, of Western values, Western morality, Western conceptions of good and evil, its careful, respectful study can reveal things to us about what we believe and how we do and should act that can be discovered in almost no other manner. He's right, actually, isn't he? That you, you, you can't understand the world that you're living in. You can't understand our government and our laws and our art and our culture and our language unless you understand the Bible. The Bible is a document worthy of serious study. So perhaps, maybe, just perhaps, you're starting to see that uh, you ought to move the Bible in your, your library, that you ought to take it off the fiction shelf and you ought to put it on the history shelf. Maybe you're starting to get a sense that that's actually where the Bible belongs. But I suspect, if that's you, that you probably have another objection at this point. Okay, Mark, fine, the Bible's reliable. The Bible, okay, it's a trustworthy document, good, great. I'm still not interested because I don't, I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want some ancient book telling me how to live. I'd prefer just to kind of get on with my own life. I'm actually doing quite fine just by myself, so I'm still not interested in the Bible. Perhaps that's your objection. I said that I think Peterson is right, and I do, but I don't think he goes far enough. Because I think that what Jordan Peterson has failed to see is that the Bible will actually teach you not just about the world you live in, it'll teach you about yourself. That's the thing that Jordan Peterson, I think, has failed to see here. You know, uh, there are lots of people in this church, you're probably sitting next to one of them right now, who take the Bible very seriously. We did some, uh, some research in our church a couple of years ago. We discovered that upwards of 75% of the people at Wollongong Baptist who are regulars here, upwards of 75% of those people uh, read the Bible for themselves at least several times a week. Uh, they're people who... Uh, cannot live without the Bible. The Bible doesn't just live on the history shelf in their life. It lives on the bedside table. It lives in their handbag. It lives in their hand. There are lots of people in this room who take the Bible very seriously. Now, look, ha having just spent a bit of time just dealing with some of those objections about why you might keep the Bible at arm's length, I want to turn the tables on you a little bit, and I want to ask you a question. What is it, do you suspect, that the people who take the Bible seriously... What is it that they're seeing in the Bible that you're not seeing? It's a worthwhile question to ask, I think. For those people who take the Bible seriously, what is it that they're seeing about the Bible that I'm not seeing? 
That might be worth an investigation. Actually, as it happens, Jesus gives us the answer to that question in the second passage that we had read for us in Luke chapter 24. As Eric mentioned, this is a passage where Jesus, right at the end of Luke's biography, he's speaking with his disciples after he's risen from the dead. And Jesus gives us the lens through which we need to read the Bible. We need to see what's actually going on in the Bible. Uh, see what Jesus says there in verse 44. He tells us that everything, that must, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What Jesus is, is actually saying, quite remarkably is that the whole Bible, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, that's a shorthand for the whole thing, the whole Bible is actually about Jesus. That's the claim that Jesus is making. Every word in the Bible, every verse, every chapter, every book, it's all about him. It's actually one big story that ties together and is coherent from beginning to end, and it culminates in Jesus. That's what Jesus says is happening in the Bible. But do you know what else Jesus says in this passage? He says that if, in order to see that, in order to see that this book is about Jesus, you have to have an open mind. In fact, it's, it's more than that. God actually has to open your mind for you to see that. That's a bit of a twist, isn't it? See, according to Jesus, you won't see that in the Bible. You won't see that it's all about him because most of our minds are closed. That is, we are, we are already pre-committed to a way of thinking and seeing the world. We're pre-committed to the idea that there is no God. Pre-committed to the idea that there isn't a God who speaks and tells me what to do. Pre-committed to the idea that I can actually run my own life, thank you very much. We've got to have God open our minds to see the Bible as it truly is, to see it as a story that all leads us to Jesus. God has to do that for you because the truth is that the Bible is a hard story to hear. See what Jesus actually says the storyline of the Bible is about here. Uh, verse 46, he says that the, the Bible is this story about a character called the Messiah, Messiah is another word for Christ. Uh, maybe you've heard that before. It's not Jesus' last name. It's his job title. It's a word that means God's promised king, the one who God was going to send to rescue people. Jesus says that this whole book, this Bible, is about the Messiah. And I think that begs the question for us, doesn't it? What is this Messiah actually coming to save us from? What do we need saving from? Jesus tells us. He says that our problem is Sin. We need saving from our sins. Sin is a word that the Bible uses which means uh, all of the ways that we have mistreated God. The way that the Bible describes sin is that you and I, just like Adam and Eve in the garden at the very beginning of the Bible, we chose to disregard God's instruction on our life. We turned our backs on him. We said, no, thank you. We chose to live life our own way and we spun off into darkness. That's what the Bible describes as sin and it says there are consequences for that that we need saving from. And the storyline of the Bible tells you that someone has come to save you from those things, those sins that you and I have all committed. So do you see that the, the Bible tells you something that's actually quite hard to hear? It's quite confronting. It's, it's contrary to that belief that we all have, that we're doing fine just by ourselves. The Bible comes along and it says, no, you're not. You're really not doing fine by yourself.
this is a book that will not flatter you. I'm sorry if that's news to you, but this book is not going to come along and it's not going to pat you on the back and tell you what a great person you are. Uh, this is a book that actually, it, it functions a little bit like a mirror. When you read the Bible, it is like a mirror to your face. And what happens is you end up seeing yourself as you read this book, and it's an ugly representation. When I started reading the Bible for myself at about the age of 18, I was confronted with my sin really quickly. Because in the Bible, what happens is you, you read these stories about this perfect man, Jesus, and you start to measure yourself against him. You start to see really clearly your own imperfections. And so when I read stories about Jesus and saw the remarkable way that he loved people, that meant that I saw my own selfishness really, really quickly. When you read these stories about Jesus and you read about his gentleness, you start to see your own anger and hatred in your heart. When you read stories about Jesus and you see his remarkable humility, what that showed me about myself was how prideful I am. Uh, the Bible confronted me with those things and it was not comfortable. Reading the Bible and being confronted with the reality of your sin, it is not a pleasant experience. It would have actually been much nicer for me to close the Bible, put it back on my shelf and never open it again. But you know, I couldn't do that after I'd been confronted with the reality of my sin before a holy God because I, I knew at that point that I was a sinner in need of rescue. And so I want to ask you, if that's, according to Jesus, what the Bible is here to do, that's the right way of reading the Bible, let me ask you, is that a story that you want to read? Is that a story that you want to believe, that you want to trust, that you want to be true? Or are you pre-committed to an answer? Pre-committed to the idea that there is no God, and even if there is, he doesn't have a problem with me, and I'm doing fine by myself. Of course, that's not the entirety of the story of the Bible, is it? Uh, it's not just about our need for a saviour. Uh, the, the story of the Bible, as Jesus says, is actually about how this Messiah comes to rescue people by suffering for them. You see, the whole storyline of the Bible tells you that you're a sinner who is justly facing the judgment of God and that this Messiah who God himself sends he comes into the world and he steps in to take your place, to suffer the judgment so that you don't have to. That's the storyline of the Bible. It's a storyline about a hero who comes and steps in front of the bullet for you. It's a hero who dives on the grenade so that you can be spared. He drinks the poison cup so that you don't have to. That's what the Bible's about. It's about the Son of God who tasted death so that you can experience life. Why did he do that? Don't you see it? Out of love, out of love, the Messiah suffered for you so that your sins could be forgiven. Do you know that the, the blazing centre of this book is the story of a, a king who loves you so much that he laid down his life for you. The people who take this book seriously are the people who recognise that this book is a love story. It's the story of a great hero who comes into this world and who suffers for his beloved to make her his own, to rescue her from the clutches of death. It's a story that seems too good to be true. That's because every fairy tale was based on it. But it's not a fairy tale. It's true. 
you know, uh, J.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings, he knew a thing or two about fairy tales. This is what he said uh, about the Bible. He said, there is no tale ever told that men would rather find is true. Why would they rather find it's true? Because it's good. It's a story about a God who loves you in an incomparable way. And he says that there's no story which so many sceptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. It's believable. It's reliable. There's good reasons to believe this stuff. The Bible is a hard story for you to believe because it tells you that you are more sinful and more flawed in yourself than you ever dared imagine. But you know, it also tells you that you are more loved and accepted through Jesus Christ than you could have possibly hoped. That's the story of the Bible. And so let me ask you again, do you want that story to be true? Do you want to trust in that story? Do you want to believe and live by that story, a love story of which you are the centre? Tonight we've uh, dispelled, I hope, some of the fake news about the Bible. Uh, We've looked at some of the historical evidence uh, to consider whether it's worth trusting. But I think J.R.R. Tolkien is right at the end of the day, that at some point you have to engage with the Bible yourself and assess it on its own merits, whether it is trustworthy. You have to read the Bible for yourself and decide if the character at the centre of the Bible, Jesus Christ, whether he is trustworthy. Does he seem credible? Does he seem like somebody who's got your best interests at heart, that he knows what he's talking about, and that actually probably you don't? So if you came here today and that was your question, can I trust the Bible? Why should I trust the Bible? Then I want to suggest to you that the best thing that you can do is you can read it and find out. Now that might sound backwards to some of you. Plenty of people think, oh, I can't read the Bible because I don't believe it. Can I say that's not how this works? Uh, You don't read the Bible because you believe it. You read it to find out if you want to believe it. And so the best thing that you can do is to take a Bible home if you don't have one or get one off your bookshelf if you've got it collecting dust there and to start reading it just like Tristan did. I reckon the best place to start reading would be one of the Gospels, one of the biographies of Jesus' life. And I would suggest that perhaps it might be best to start off in Mark's Gospel. Not only is it the Gospel with the best name, uh, it's also the shortest Gospel as it happens. It would only take you 90 minutes to read Mark's Gospel, his biography of Jesus from start to end. 90 minutes. That's all I'm asking of you. 90 minutes which might change your life as it's changed the lives of plenty of people in this room and billions of people over the last two millennia. 90 minutes to meet someone and decide if he's trustworthy, if he's somebody worth believing, if listening to his voice will be good for you. I would encourage you to to take a Bible and start reading it yourself. You can read it by yourself, but better yet, why don't you read it with someone else? Somebody here who perhaps knows their way around the Bible a little bit better. Any of the regulars here at WBC would be very happy to read the Bible with you in a judgment-free kind of a way where you can ask questions and try and meet Jesus and make a decision about him. Why should you trust the Bible? There's good evidence. But more than that, it's a story which actually explains who you are and what's wrong with this world, and it offers you a solution. A solution where you get to meet a king who loves you and wants to make you his own for all eternity. Doesn't that sound like a story that's worth believing? I'm going to pray for us.
Lord God, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you that we have this book reliably preserved for us, that we can read freely, we can understand easily, and that we can come and we can meet in its pages your Son, the Lord Jesus. God, I want to pray for anybody here tonight who perhaps has not yet looked into the Bible, not read it for themselves, who's been dismissing it as something not worthy of their trust. I pray, please, would you guide them as they read the Bible to see and to meet and to come to know and love and trust the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would help us all to see how trustworthy he is. We pray it for his sake. Amen.